In this podcast, we discuss death, specifically the death of children, grief, depression, suicide, and religious ideologies. We've done our best to approach these topics with compassion, but if you think it may upset you, please consider skipping this episode. Welcome to Read It in Theaters, a podcast where I read it and I watch it. I'm LB. And I'm Hava, and today we're talking about what dreams may come. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated this book so much. <laughs> I That's fantastic, because I love this movie so much. <laughs> I know. I've seen the movie, like, a decade ago, at least. Yeah. And it's a really good movie. It's and great. so, when I read the book the first time, this is the second time I've read it. When I read it the first time, I was like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> And then I think I mentioned on the end of the last podcast that I that it was a major drag and I was not looking forward to it. It holds but up. You, but you did it for us. <laughs> I there was this quote I was desperately trying to find. It seems to have been expunged from the internet because I swear that I read it on the Wikipedia article either for the movie or for the book mm-hmm. years ago. Just because mm-hmm. I was I was reading about it one time. And it was a quote about how Richard Matheson, who wrote the book, like, hated the movie. Mm -hmm. And it was a quote from one of his colleagues or friends, I can't remember who, who essentially said it would have been a good movie had they based it off your book. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so savage and so disparaging of the movie. And I was trying so hard to find that quote. I can't find it anywhere. Mm. Um, Instead, I found this quote from Richard Matheson, which from what you've told me about the book is... So incorrect, but I guess I guess he can't be 100% wrong, but he said, I think What Dreams May Come is the most important, effective book I've written. It has caused a number of reader- readers to lose their fear of death, the finest tribute any writer could receive. I mean, he would think that. I mean, apparently Maybe people he's right. said that to him. Yeah. I Okay, so here's the thing. Uh-huh. I don't think that this book is trying to tell a story. And in that sense, what he's trying to do is very effective. Okay. Uh, But he's not trying to tell a story. He's trying to um, convince people of his own personal ideology, which he spends a lot of time on. Cool. Isn't that what he did with a bunch of his writing? That I don't know. I've only read two things by him. Okay, I I watched the movie that a movie that he wrote based off of one of his novels for the next podcast episode, and it ended up not being relevant. But that one was clearly just I'm Richard Matheson, and here's my ideology. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I feel like maybe in that case, a lot of his ideology slipped into his writing in general. But in this one, it's really like a good half of the book is spent on trying to tell you about the afterlife and how it works in intricate detail rather than telling a story. Interesting. So the movie is really emotional. It's very emotionally driven. It's about um, a family that suffers just tragedy upon tragedy. They're this couple's two children die in a car accident and then four years later the husband dies and it's interesting (laughs) (laughs) um and it's his journey through accepting his own death accepting that he can't be with his wife anymore and then later the wife dies by suicide and he ventures down into hell to rescue her and it's more or less 
it's all just super emotional. I mean, like I, I cry like five minutes in and then just keep crying for the rest of the two hour runtime. It's like devastatingly sad. <laughs> More or less, that's what the book is about. It's a man named Chris who dies in a car accident. All of their children are still alive, though. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, they put just an extreme amount of emphasis on Ian praying, their youngest son praying. It um, just it really saves his soul from being stuck on Earth. Um, oh, okay. In the state of purgatory, just. Because Ian's praying and and no one knows it. It's secret praying. Wait, and, yeah. Wait. So Ian praying <laughs> is what allows Chris to leave purgatory in part. Okay. Uh. So okay. So first off, before we get too far into it, I do want to read you a little bit of the introduction by Richard Matheson. Okay. So it's a page long. I won't read the whole thing, but he says. Because its subject is survival after death, it is essential that you realize before reading this story that only one aspect of it is fictional, the characters and their relationships. With few exceptions, every other detail is derived from extensive research. Uh, what kind of research can prove the afterlife? Yeah. Um, despite the wide variation with regards to authors and times and places of publication, there is a persistent unavoidable uniformity to their content, which now that I have read that and also read the six page bibliography, um, (laughs) he, that's not true. There's only like two books that aren't published in the Western world. And most of them were published in the seventies. So like, that's just there's like five that don't fit the mold, so again, this is just seems to be Richard Matheson insisting that he's correct because in the mm-hmm. movie that I watched, there was a similar um, introduction where it had a, a quote from a psychic who advised the English royals saying that everything in the movie aside from the story and the characters could very well have been true and I'm a psychic, <laughs> so therefore well I'm right. True. Uh, could very well have been true absolutely kills me because it's like you can say anything and then be like that very well could be true you cannot disprove it therefore yeah yeah it was wild it was (laughs) that movie was a lot but uh okay so chris dies yeah so how does he die in the book he dies of a car accident okay and then is he a doctor in the book no is he a doctor in the movie he's a pediatrician and the reason he dies is because he sees a car accident gets out to help and then there's a pile up and he gets hit by another car that's really interesting because he's a an author right of course he's an author (laughs) in this book um i couldn't think of it for a second then i was like oh right it's, it's a self-insert. <laughs> it's openly a self-insert. He's like, Chris is me and is my wife. Oh my god. Yeah. How uncreative. Anyway, he's an author. Um, but when he's... Big spoilers, in case you weren't aware. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, when he's reincarnated in the end of the book, he chooses to be a doctor. Um, to Interesting. Con- to continue infantilizing his wife, but we'll get there. Okay. Tight. <laughs> so he dies. Um, uh-huh. And I think 
90% of the first half of this book could be cut. This book was so long. And again, it's because he's not trying to tell a story. He's trying to explain his ideology. Um, and so there were... You could easily cut 100 pages from this. Easily. Damn. Um, because so much of it is repetitive and making sure to just really hammer home. That he's a Christian. Well, it's not exactly Christian beliefs. A lot of it takes from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Interesting. But it's, uh, he spends a lot of time on it. And one of the things that I found extremely irritating was that the very beginning of the book is that just wild introduction from the author. And then, (laughs) um... A psychic shows up at his brother's house and gives him a manuscript and is like, this is from your brother, Chris. And his brother, Robert, is like, hey, fuck you. Chris has been dead for a year. And she's like, yeah, I know. Take this so I can get on with my life. And um, the manuscript is the book that Chris, uh, you know, had her automatically write, you know. I was going to say, was it automatic writing? That is so wild. Yeah. So one of the things that really bothers me, and I, uh, this kind of bothers me anyway, like when people write in, like in an accent. Oh, yeah. Where it's like spelled out phonetically instead of just a word. And then you're like, and they had an accent. Like, it just really bothers me. It makes it really unreadable. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gauche to do that these days. Mm -hmm. And so... I counted because it is 12 times in the first 12 pages. They have these little asides where I only wrote down one and it's the worst one for some, I, there was a really good one that I can't remember what it was. It's Mimbins were compressed. No, try again. Spell slowly. M-E-M-B reigns. Yes. What? So he spells out membranes because she, like, hears it wrong when he's telling it to her as a spirit. Oh, and, what? right, so you have That's this little... That's how automatic writing works. Uh, I mean, they didn't actually say automatic writing, so it could have oh, been. Oh, okay, okay. But, yeah, so there's this little aside to the medium that he found to write this manuscript for him. And, like, has she never heard of editing? Like, she knows it's supposed to be membranes now, right? And, like, this is the 70s, so it's probably on a typewriter. But, like, you could, ju- you could just retype that one page or, like, use whiteout, maybe. Sure. Like, you can edit it. This is, you made a typo, and then you left not only the typo, but the notes from the editor in your finished work. That's so funny. <laughs> But, um, you know, when you're first starting out a book, you're not, like, invested in it yet. Yeah. And so to have it be not only slow and seems pointless and you're just starting out so you're not invested at all, and that happens once a page. Ooh. Yeah. It's like, what? why are you doing this? This completely ruins the flow of what you're saying. I'm trying to explain this incredibly complex aspect of dying and i'm gonna just full stop and have an editor's note yeah that's a weird choice weird choice really bothersome so what is the the process of dying in the book so it's a tiny bit unclear because he stops every page 
uh, right. to have a note to the editor. <laughs> right. And so he dies, and then he's in, like, this fugue state almost, where he can't see more than, like, ten feet in front of him, and everything is, like, gray and washed out, and there's right. time skips, so he, like, is in the hospital and sees his dead body, but is like, well, that's not me, because I'm standing right here, so mm-hmm. that can't be me. Um, clearly, I've... I remember being in a car accident, so I'm probably in surgery, and this is a weird dream. And he, like, insists to himself that it's a dream. And then he, like, hops around time-jumping whenever he hears Anne crying. Which I did think was, like, an interesting thing, because they established that they're soulmates. Oh, okay. Like, right off the bat? Uh, no, they don't reveal it officially until the end. But there is a quote right in the beginning of the book... He goes, I could still hear the sobbing, even though Anne was silent. It's in our minds, or it's in her mind. Our minds are so close that I could still hear it. And that's at his funeral. She's sitting there silently, but he can, like, hear her sobbing. Wow. And so anytime she's feeling an extreme amount of grief, it, like, stops his process of moving on to the afterlife. That is so interesting, because in the movie, it's almost reversed, Hmm. In the in the film, he can't let her go, and so he's hanging around as a spirit, and every time he tries to reach out to her and comfort her, sort of, because he's seeing her grief, it makes mm-hmm. it worse. And so he eventually hmm. has to choose to move on because he realizes that hanging around as a spirit is just hurting Anne. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's incongruent with the book but it definitely if I was going to pick a direction for it to go it would be Anne grieving is making him stay. So it's like a different framing of the same situation. Yeah and there's um there's a whole thing and again this is more explaining his ideology than anything important to the story although it was kind of interesting like this you might leave in to make a story where like he feels his soul coming out of his body and then there's like a golden tether leading from the head of the dead body to the head of his spirit and that has to be severed in order for him to move on yeah like not all of it was uninteresting but it was just like why are we still talking about that he doesn't get to the afterlife until a full quarter through the book wow yeah I think he gets it. I think he enters the afterlife like maybe 20 minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. Because I'm pretty sure their children die like seven minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because I didn't, it doesn't seem like it's that fast. Yeah. Because the movie, again, it's so like emotionally driven. And I think that the score really helps like put you into the mindset and the feelings of the characters right from the get go. And so. Because I texted you, because I started crying when the kids died. (laughs) And so I texted you, and I think I said seven minutes in, and I'm already crying. Mm -hmm. And by the time the children die, you already know so much about this family. It's crazy how much they can pack into those first seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah, this was very... I feel like the writing style was very removed from the emotions of it, excluding Chris's own emotions. Like, it was very revolved around what Chris was feeling. Hmm. So I want to know if there's any use of like visual metaphor in the book because Absolutely the movie not. is 
Okay, so the movie is like nothing but visual metaphor. It's beautiful. Okay. Um, and I want to talk about how they use colors to kind of manipulate the viewer's feelings mm-hmm. and also to keep the viewer like tied to points of the story. Like they use colors to make sure you're remembering everything you need to remember. I love that. Which is really cool. So they, I noticed four main colors that they use the most, I think, which the first one is red, which is right in the beginning. The first scene is Chris and Annie meeting when they're both traveling through, no, near Switzerland. Can't quite remember. Um, But they meet on a lake. They're both on boats. And Annie's sail is red and she's wearing an all white dress with like a red sarong tied around her waist. And that's, yeah, that's the, the point of the many of the shots is to show the bright red of her outfit and her boat, the sail of her boat. And then we see red again when Chris dies. He dies, like I said, in a car accident, but it's in a tunnel. And so there's this red glow in the distance of taillights Mm -hmm. that lights up the tunnel with red the moment that he dies he dies thinking of Anne well he he does die thinking of Anne Um, but it's also to me I think the red in the movie shows like progression Mm. because meeting Anne was a huge turning point in his life and so that is marked by the red of her boat and her sarong and then when he first loses Anne, it's when he dies and there's red there. The next time that red is notable is he has to take a boat from heaven to hell. And that boat also has a red sail. Oh, interesting. Right. So his next, as he's traveling to find Anne in hell, he gets on a boat with a red sail. And then lastly, um, he ends up saving her from hell and they in the end of the movie talk about rebirth like they agreed to be reborn together and she's wearing a red dress in that scene so it's sort of like every time something pivotal happens in chris's life related to anne there's red that's interesting so it shows sort of like a progression and an action and and an important point i want to take a second to talk about the boat okay because although It's kind of weird, because I feel like this book made a point to be like, this has nothing to do with the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. Um, And yet, (laughs) there's so much symbolism. So, I think it's interesting that they take a boat in the book. There's not anything like that, or sorry, in the movie. There's not anything like that in the book. But in uh, Purgatorio by Dante Alighieri, which is the second book of the Divine Comedy, um you take a boat to get to purgatory. Interesting. And so, and then you climb a mountain in order to get to heaven. And so I think that it's interesting that they had him take a boat to get to hell. Yeah. There's several scenes with boats. Um, And water is another huge metaphor used in the movie where, um, again, almost like every time something big happens I guess it's almost like every time he starts to lose his connection to Annie he ends up like submerged in water somehow I think that's a really interesting thing to take from the book I think that that's really smart in order to 
um, give it a through line because in the book he talks a lot about how they like water. I think they met they met at a beach and they like sailing and but it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. He's just talking. Okay. Um, so I think that's really smart for them to have picked up on that and been like, oh, we can turn this into a metaphor. Yeah, I feel like water is almost used in conjunction with the colors in the film to kind of connect Chris's memories and his emotions. Mm -hmm. Because the movie does a lot of flashbacks. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, if we're flashing back to one of Chris's memories, there's some contact with water as he transitions from his presence in either heaven or hell back to a memory of his life on Earth. That's interesting. Yeah, and so one of the ones that I thought was really cool is there's obviously the first scene in the film where he and Annie meet on a lake. Um, but the very next scene, after we see them get married and then we see them with their children. And it's like a rainy day where they're having a water fight in the backyard. So there's like garden hose and everyone's soaking wet and laughing. And it's like this really great memory that Chris has. And he goes back to that memory a couple of times as he's traveling through heaven and hell. As well as a memory of him with his son, Ian, where they played hooky from school and work and went out into a forest and it was raining that day. Oh, I love that. Right. So there's one point where he starts to, he, he has this like soulmate connection to Annie that's guiding him through hell towards her. And he starts to lose it because he thinks about Ian instead. And he falls out of the boat and into the sea that they're on. And while he's falling through the water in hell, he falls sort of back in time to that day with Ian in the woods. And he remembers like fond things about his son, but he does so through water. Interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. <clears throat> so does he have another person with him? Like a Virgil, basically a guide? Yeah, he has two. Okay. So he, when he first dies... In the movie, he is, like, trapped on Earth because he can't let go. He can't admit that he's dead. Mm -hmm. And similar to what you were saying, it's like he can't always see things clearly. And so at first he's just like a – we just hear his thoughts. We don't see him anymore. Mm -hmm. And he can see everything related to his wife and his life on Earth very clearly. But this man who has appeared and is like his guide mm -hmm. um, is really blurry. He can't see him clearly. Mm -hmm. And at first he mistakes this man as like the doctor who was operating on him. And then he comes to realize that it is the doctor he interned under when he was becoming a pediatrician. Interesting. So his name's Albert and he was like Chris's cousin like <laughs> what no <laughs> yeah it's chris's cousin in the book <laughs> oh weird no in the movie it's like his mentor who died years ago i like that and way better in death. i like that way better because he gets to heaven and is like oh it's albert my cousin who died forever ago that i barely knew <laughs> nope <laughs> nope in the movie it's his mentor and he's played by cuba gooding jr who does just a fantastic job. Oh, I love that. Fantastic job. And one of the things I I do want to say, okay, I want to talk about this because it's one thing that I think could be criticized about the movie mm -hmm. is they definitely play with physical representation, but they do so through changing people's race. 
Mm. So the Albert that he meets, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., is actually his son, Ian, who has chosen to take on the form of Albert so that he can guide his father through death in the appearance of a man that his father respects instead of trying to convince him to listen to his son. So Ian dies. Ian all dies. their all their children are, die in the beginning. They only have two children in the movie, oh, and they both okay. die. Okay. Okay. For some reason, I thought that Ian was still alive. Nope. The kids die first, and okay. there's only two of them. Okay. Yeah. So the kids die in a car accident when they're teenagers. Four years later, Chris dies in a car accident, mm-hmm. and when he dies, his son Ian is his guide to heaven, but he appears as Albert. Mm-hmm. And he lets Chris believe that he's Albert. And it's not until the end of the movie that Chris realizes that it's not Albert, it's Ian. So so there's that. And obviously, like, it's Robin Williams, so they're a white family. And then Cuba Gooding Jr., who's black. <laughs> yeah, that's a little questionable. It's a little questionable. I, I've thought about it for days, trying to figure out what about it feels not quite correct to me. Mm-hmm. I can't qu- really put my finger on it, I think, because I'm white. Yeah. I just... I'm not quite sure. Um, Because the other thing is he sees his daughter in heaven too, and she chooses to appear as an Asian woman. Hmm. And later he meets the actual spirit of Albert, who has now chosen to appear as a white man. And the way that it's explained in the movie through the actual character of Albert, he says that, well, they, they establish first that heaven is whatever you want it to be yeah you think it and it and it it, that's what it looks like including the way you present yourself so you can choose to be whatever you want yeah they spend about six chapters explaining that concept cool um (laughs) it's pretty concise in the film (laughs) so the way that ian as albert explains it first is just that one body is as good as any other and it's it's all window dressing it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. but the way that the real albert explains it is who you are in life gets in the way of your relationships to each other in heaven. So who's the father, who's the son, who's the mentor, who's the student, none of that really matters in death. So they oftentimes will choose to appear drastically different so that they can get to know the real people without all of that earthly, like social structure getting in the way. Huh. Which I think is really interesting. I just don't know if it was necessary to make, so many different characters either be people of color or stop being people of color yeah um so i don't i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) yeah it feels um i mean the way that it's explained makes it but the thing is, it's going to be consumed by people on Earth that are living in a society. And exactly. it feels like you're dressing up as a person of color. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I, I can't have a clear opinion on it because I'm white. Yes. And so Same. from my perspective, it seems like like a minor point. Like it's maybe not, quote, that bad mm-hmm. in terms of racism, but that's not my place to decide. Exactly. Um, so I did want to mention that as a potential criticism, but I I don't have any particular feelings on it because I don't quite get it. Yeah. I don't remember why my what my point was in bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, remember what we were talking about. <laughs> I asked if he had a guide and you right, told me about yes. Albert. So he has, yes, so he has Albert, who is Ian. He has Ian as Albert, and then later he has real Albert. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. And for a, for a period of time when they first set out towards hell, both of them are with him. Interesting. And, and at the beginning of that journey, he thinks Ian is Albert, and he thinks that Albert is just a dude. He doesn't have any idea that it's someone he knows. Interesting. Yeah. So in the book, it's just Albert. It's okay. Albert comes to him when he's in his fugue state on Earth and tries to get him to move on, but he can't because Anne is grieving. Grieving is not allowed, by the way. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's bad. Everyone who grieves is a bad person. Okay, cool. <laughs> I want to get into that in a minute because the movie, I love how the movie handles grieving. Um, so Albert comes to him in his fugue state, and then when he finally does move on and is in heaven... In Summerland, as it's called in the book, oh. uh, Albert is there, and they talk, and then Albert also accompanies him to hell, much as Virgil does. Again, like, there's all mm -hmm. this, I feel like the book purposefully was being like, no, Dante's Inferno is not correct, and then has all of these parallels. <laughs> cool. Like, when he gets to Summerland, there's no sun, and there's also no shadows, and okay right and i actually i sent you a discord message i remember because um virgil <laughs> doesn't have a shadow in purgatorio and i'm like what we and um it's because he's made of spirit stuff and therefore doesn't cast a shadow but i just thought that it was interesting that he gets chris gets to summerland and nothing casts a shadow well, I feel like that's more to do with the fact that there is no light source less to do than the fact that they're made out of spirit stuff. Um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if there's no light source, there can be no shadows. Well, except everything is just, like, amb ambiently lit. Like... Right. Yeah. But, I, I mean, that's still just a weird, like, why not have a sun? Why make the right. choice to have there be no sun and no shadows when that, again, draws a direct parallel to the Divine Comedy? Yeah, interesting. And also having Albert accompany him to hell, like, actually into hell, um, yeah. through a bunch it's of... Virgil and Dante. Right. <laughs> and they go through circles, and so this... Wait, wait, okay. wait, wait. Before we get into hell, yeah. I, I want to I wanna back up. <laughs> because I want to talk about the grief. Yes. I want to just go first, because mine's going to be really short. It's just one paragraph. Yeah, go for it. The attitudes of people toward those who have died is vital, you see, Robert, because it's addressed to his brother, right? Uh, right? Since the consciousness of the deceased is so vulnerable to impressions, the emotions of those left behind can have a powerful effect on it. Intense sorrow creates a vibration which actually causes pain to the departed, holding them back from progression. Actually, it's unfortunate that people mourn the dead, prolonging the adjustment to the hereafter. The deceased need time to reach their second death. The funeral ceremony was meant to be a medium of peace peaceful release relief not a ritual of grief what you're not allowed to grieve it's bad you're, you're a bad person wow that is so messed up right i mean that is so counter to my own beliefs oh right that it's wild to me because i personally believe that grief all the things that happen after someone dies is for the living. It's to give us comfort Absolutely. and that the person who's dead doesn't care anymore. They're moving on. And we'll get into this later with their con yeah. condemnation of suicide. But yes. the onus being on the people that are living, like, no, you have to behave a certain way or else yeah. you're bad. 
Okay, so they take that idea in the movie and completely deconstruct it. Interesting. So um, after the children die, Annie falls into a really, really severe depression Mm -hmm. and attempts suicide. Mm -hmm. And we see this mostly through flashbacks. And here is another place where I want to point out the use of color is all of these flashbacks where we see Annie at her greatest suffering. Um, it's all swathed in green. Interesting. And to me, I think that green, cause it's all, it's not just green, but it's living plants. So there are scenes where she's post suicide attempt is in a hospital and I, I'm not sure if it's a recovery center or just a psychiatric hospital or what, but she's outside in this big expansive green where these tall there are these tall hedges and she's wearing green pajamas and a green robe that is the exact shade of the grass and the plants. That is so interesting. Yes. And Chris is visiting her and they're sort of discussing things, having these really difficult conversations about her mental health and kind of whether or not they're going to stay together because they're both grieving in such different ways. Um, and he's wearing all earth tones. So there's no green on him. It's But Annie is all green. Hmm. And they have these conversations a couple of different times in the film and in different ways where they talk about, like Annie says that she feels all alone in her grief because Chris doesn't seem to be as sad. Mm-hmm. And he says that what he's doing is trying to be strong. And he thought that that's what he had to do. That's how he hid from his feelings and how he dealt with his grief was to be strong and not show it. Mm -hmm. But because of their inability to grieve together, it started to pull them apart. And they have this whole conversation about like, if they're going to get a divorce, he like has a plane ticket and he says, I'll leave if you don't want me here because it seems like I'm just making it worse and I'm hurting you. And through this sort of very emotional conversation, they end up, talking about the things that they weren't able to talk about and it's what keeps them together that's really interesting right so it's not there's no condemnation of grieving in the right way or that grief is bad it's just grief is hard and people do it in different ways and the way to be there for each other oftentimes is just to talk about it Mm -hmm. and I like that they have that conversation with all of this greenery around them Mm -hmm. And the next sequential thing that we see from them is a moment where they're, it's been a year since then, and they're talking about celebrating it as an anniversary because it's the day that they didn't get a divorce. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, they call it the double D anniversary because it's it's Annie didn't die and they didn't get a divorce. So it's two Ds. <laughs> and um, they're discussing celebrating it and doing something nice because it's been a whole year since that day and we see them both clothed in blue sitting on a couch in their house and the couch is surrounded by foliage they just have huge house plants all around them i like that green sort of shows growth like it's the emotional growth whereas red shows a physical progression from one thing to another i like that yeah yeah definitely not how it is in the book cool in the book um (laughs) you're not allowed to grieve (laughs) i I hate that right well and that so their whole idea of getting into heaven there um matheson's idea that he presents is Mm -hmm. it's just bonkers to me um (laughs) (laughs) bonkers.com it is bonkers.com because (laughs) 
So it's like you were saying where everything that matters, it's what's in your mind. And if you conceive of it, it can happen kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they just, they really lean on that. And so they have a version of purgatory that's your life flashing before your eyes. But you are actually reliving all of those moments with intensity. And again, it's a little hard to understand because it's like you're living through your thoughts also and I'm like I don't under like are you acting out your thoughts I'm not sure what you're trying to say here so but so I just and I have a problem with this anyway because like when I was younger I used to really engage with magical thinking and it's yeah super unhealthy for me at least and I feel like from what I've read for people with OCD it's really unhealthy for people with intrusive thoughts it's really unhealthy to be like yeah actually your every thought does matter and you have to reckon with each and every one of those thoughts to get into heaven yeah and that's a really catholic way of looking at it i think yes yeah and i just um not a fan (laughs) no me either i think that there's a lot of catholic ideology woven into the film whether on purpose or not Mm -hmm. specifically in the way they talk about suicide Mm mm-hmm So, uh, we were going to talk about hell a little bit. Yeah, real quick. I just want to note, because I think this is, like, an amazing thing Mm -hmm. about the movie. Um, And it goes back to them being soulmates. Which I love, Mm -hmm. because I'm always here for soulmates. Oh my god, I'm weak for soulmates. That's the only reason I don't wish that this book didn't exist. Because sometimes I read really bad books, and I'm like, I this shouldn't exist. It's bad for people. Um, and the only reason that I can't bring myself to give it that rating in my own head is because I'm so weak for soulmates. <laughs> Same. Um, so in the movie, the way that we find out they're soulmates, in the movie, Annie is a painter and an art dealer. Love that. And uh, I did read, I think it... Ooh, it was either the director or the screenplay writer. I can't remember which one. But, um, because what does she do in the book? I think she might also be a painter in the book. But, like, she just doesn't matter. No, she's something else in the book. Because I remember reading this this thing about how they were trying to get across the point that heaven is whatever you want it to mm-hmm. be. Um, visually. And they couldn't quite, like, figure out how to do that. To, like, merge from... Chris being a spirit on earth into being in a different place that could be anything. Mm-hmm. So they made the choice to turn Annie into a painter. And when Chris goes to heaven, his heaven is a painting. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And it's this, the visual effects are amazing. This movie won the Oscar for visual effects the year it came out. I love that. And it really is, I mean, it's so well done that when he walks, it shows his feet smearing the paint on the ground, and he's, like, in this on this hill full of wildflowers, and he picks up a flower, and it turns into oil paint in his hand. Oh, God. It's really amazing. And so it, when he first arrives in heaven, the way that he processes it is through paint, because that's, like, the language that he and Annie share. Mm-hmm. And then later, the way we find out they're soulmates is a tree appears in his heaven that he didn't put there. And at first, Albert, Ian as Albert, <laughs> says, like, uh, you know, things like that happen. Your your brain is, or your imagination is sort of doing this automatically now. So things might change that you didn't do on purpose. But it ends up being that Annie painted that tree and Chris saw it in his heaven. I love that. 
Uh-huh. And then it gets immediately sad because Annie on Earth is still talking to Chris in her mind. Mm-hmm. That's how she's coping. And so uh, it shows her painting it and she's like saying like, what about this, Chris? Do you think that this looks good? Like she's like, as she's painting it, she's in her head, like discussing it with him. And then she has this moment of horrible grief where she's like, I don't know why I think that you can see this. I'm being crazy. And she pours paint thinner all over it and destroys the painting. It's so sad. Oh God. It, it guts me. That scene is so sad because then the tree in Chris's heaven starts to die. Wow. And he can feel Annie's pain and he knows that she's suffering without him. Wow. It's so sad, but <laughs> that's, but wow, that's, I love that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. And the whole movie is like that. There's, there are these connections between them because they're soulmates and that's how he like decides that he can save her from hell Wow, <laughs> is because she dies by suicide. And here's where I want to get into how they treat suicide in this oh movie because my it is my, <laughs> it's my biggest criticism. I hate it. So Ian as Albert, comes to him and says, you know, Annie has killed herself. Mm -hmm. And Chris has his moment of grief. Mm -hmm. And then he immediately is like, but it's okay because, you know, she's not in pain anymore. And and I'll get to see her. She's here now. (laughs) No, she's not. And the way that it's explained in the movie is that there's a natural order to things. And each of us has an intrinsic knowledge of how our journey on earth is supposed to go. But when you commit suicide you've severed that connection mm-hmm. and you've changed things and now you end up in a, in a place somewhat like hell. Yep. They use the word hell in the movie, but they make it clear that it is not a biblical hell or a, like a, an actual, like no one's, no one's put them in hell. There's no quote unquote judgment, except there clearly is. Right. That's what they do in the book too, where he says, uh, I apparently don't have it written down, but he says, it's not a law. It's not a punishment. Or no, it is a law. It's not a punishment. It's just the law. And it's like, How, well, explain that's the a difference punishment. to me. Right. And so in the it movie. It wasn't her decision to make though. Yeah. And so in the movie, uh, when Ian as Albert is explaining this to him, Chris gets angry as he rightfully should. Yeah. And is like, that's not fair. And Ian as Albert is like, there's no judgment. Nobody put her there. It's just the reality. And Chris is like, yeah, and the reality is that suicides go to hell. How's there no goddamn judgment in that? Right. And and so on the one hand, you have Chris's character who is very correct and very rightfully upset about this. But the movie never like changes its narrative about suicide. Yeah. It's still like she messed up and it's because she's too caught up in her depression Mm -hmm. and too self-absorbed to admit that she's ruined her path on earth and she can't admit what she's done and face it. Therefore, she can't come to yep. heaven because her mind is too tangled up in depression. Yep. That's more or less. Which is so harmful mm-hmm. for people suffering with depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in the book, the quote is, it isn't a punishment, it's the law. And Chris says, but she had to be out of her mind with grief. Albert says, yeah. if she had been, she sh- she wouldn't be where she is. It's as simple as that. No one put her there. The fact that she's there is proof that she made a willful decision. Yeah, no, that, I hate Never that. mind the fact that studies show that people who um, are living with suicidal thoughts and behavior and are, the mid- are in the middle of, like, a suicide attempt mm-hmm. hallucinate because they are so out of their mind. 
Yes. And speaking from my own personal experience, I went through a really severe depression when I was a teenager and had suicidal thoughts and was fed the rhetoric that suicide is a selfish choice that only hurts the people that you Mm -hmm. love. Like when you're depressed, your thought patterns are so warped Mm -hmm. and depression tricks you into thinking no one loves Mm -hmm. you. And to then be told, oh, yeah, those thoughts that you're having that you can't really control, that you sh- that you would be better off dead, that's selfish. Yep. It's like, I don't, I don't need more of that. I already think people hate me. Yeah. Like, being told that my suicidal thoughts are my choice and that they're selfish just made me feel worse. Yeah, it's absolute <laughs> bullshit. It's horrible. And unlearning that takes a lot of work. <laughs> So yeah, I hate that the movie does mm-hmm. that. I hate that it never changes its narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that at least Annie gets saved. She doesn't have to be in yeah. hell, and she does get to go to heaven. But it's but it's never been it, done it, before, and in right, the book, and no one believes that they can right, do it in the book. Albert is like, I, "This is not possible," and Chris is like, yeah. "Okay, but I'm gonna do it though." <laughs> yeah, but yeah, both. Both Anne and Albert in the movie continually are like, you can't save yeah. her. We'll let you go say your last goodbyes to her in hell, but you can't save yeah. her. And so this I don't understand. In the book, Annie is only going to be Annie. She's Anne in the book, but... Uh, well, she's Annie right. in the movie. <laughs> so I guess I'm using it interchangeably now. Um, yeah, same. So <laughs> she is supposed to live for 20 think it was 24 more years and then die of something and because she kills herself excuse me because she completes suicide she has to um spend 24 years in hell instead oh okay so it is like a sentence in the yeah she has to spend the rest of her what would be her natural born life in hell and Chris is like, well, I can't let her spend almost a quarter of a decade. I have to go save her. She will just be there suffering. That's horrible. Um, and so Albert says, and I, I still don't understand why this is the stakes. He's like, okay, but if you go there and lower your vibrations um, to the point that that she can see you and you can interact with her, there's a chance that you could be trapped there forever. Why? Okay. Why wouldn't he be trapped there for 24 years? Because, like, yeah, if Annie <laughs> is only going to be there for 24 years and then will, like, be free, I guess. Like, I don't know. Her vibrations will just spontaneously height. I don't. <laughs> then why is he trapped forever if he comes down to her level? God, see, and I just, I don't like that it's, like, she's sentenced to Mm -hmm. suffer as much as she was supposed to suffer Mm -hmm. on Earth. Like, because she was suffering so much, she thought that death would be the way out. That's so messed up. Right, she was suffering so much that she thought death would be the way out, and so she has to suffer some more. But it's not a punishment. It's not a punishment. And that's, like, that officially gives her no hope of not suffering for that amount of time. Where, like, maybe if she had not chosen suicide um like you know maybe things would have gotten better for her we'll never know but now you're saying because she completed suicide she has to suffer yeah there's no other option i that is so bad it's terrible (laughs) there's one thing they say in the movie that really made me angry is um the real albert it's sort of the same deal only they don't talk about vibrations (laughs) it's just because 
because heaven is what you make it, hell is also what mm-hmm. you make it, even if it's unintentional, mm-hmm. which is why they make a point to say it's not like the biblical hell because it's just people who are who can't like get out of their own heads and who yeah. are inadvertently which is kind of from the tibetan book of the dead because there's uh a belief that you'll be confronted with uh, i forget what they call them greedy spirits i think but they are just projections of your own mind and if you're capable of realizing that then you can escape them but if you think that they're real and fear them you'll be trapped okay so the real albert in the movie when warning Chris that he could get pulled into Annie's delusions, mm-hmm. says suicides can get pretty committed to torturing themselves. Oh, God. I just, it keeps framing depression as a choice. Yeah. And I hate yeah. that so much. Same. <laughs> because it's also like, okay, like, I'm sure Chris was miserable. I'm sure he went through some kind of depression after his children died. There's no way not to when you're suffering that kind of life. So just because his depression didn't last as long as Annie's, that means that he's free from any self-hatred or free from any feelings of guilt that might taint his heaven. It's so, it doesn't make any sense. And it's so demonizing of people who die by suicide. Anyway. Yeah, not a fan of the way that they treat um, thoughts, because any Mm -hmm. stray thought matters. So, you know, how you have that persistent intrusive thought of just, like, slamming down real hard on your cat when they're on the floor and just breaking (laughs) their little spine. Um, (laughs) You know, that intrusive thought everyone has. Um, You know, that intrusive thought where you're like, what if I just jumped out of this moving vehicle? For sure. That, uh, <laughs> you're bad for thinking that. You're bad. You're bad and you chose to think mm-hmm. that. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I think they thought they were being compassionate towards mental health. But it's, maybe it's because it came out in like 98, but it just, it could have done a lot better. It definitely could have. So tell me about hell in the book. Okay, so, uh, they... Hello, you want to sit next to me? Is it a cat? It's my bean. Hi. <laughs> my phone, when we were texting earlier, I typed in beanie and my phone automatically suggested the possessive beanies. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I want an animal. Both of mine are egged up, ignoring me. They don't mm. love me. So, hell is, this is what made me decide to read Sabriel also, which ended up not being relevant at all. But it was an audiobook, and Tim Curry was reading it. Right. So, so I finished it to. anyway. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was really good. Um, and he has done voiceover work. So, like, the emotion in the characters' voices was, like, superb. Fantastic. It Big recommendation so of Sabriel to anyone who hasn't read or listened to it. God, if you're going to get the audiobook, whew, I highly recommend. Tim Curry. <laughs> Tim Curry. Uh, every I just I book. highly recommend Tim Curry. Full stop. Full stop. Every book should be read by uh, a voice actor. I agree. Okay, so they go to hell, and there's there's chunks in the same way that there are in Dante's Inferno and Sabriel, Sabriel, if you will. Okay. <laughs> Although you should not. Um, <laughs> Um, and there's also, like, chunks in What Dreams May Come, and the thing that I found super 
notable, and I think that this is weird, in all three of those, there's a section where you have to climb down a sheer rock face. Interesting. I think in Sabriel, it's it's akin more to a staircase, like a spiral staircase, but it's still, like, straight down and steep, and it's always the second section that you go to. Like, you go through the first section, and then you go through the second section, and then you go down a sheer rock face. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Weird, right? I remember that from Sabriel. Yeah. Sabriel. (laughs) (laughs) And Dante's Inferno. And this book, where they're, like, they're going through hell, and they have to lower their vibrations uh, (laughs) in order to... Like, I forget how they describe it. It's like the air is super heavy and it's hard to breathe and it's hard to exist there. So they have to lower their vibrations, which makes them more flesh-like so that they can survive hell. I don't like that. Yeah, it's yucky. (laughs) (laughs) And they run into the denizens of hell and it's awful. (laughs) In the movie... Like I said, they have to cross a sea, mm-hmm. and sort of, I guess, midway through that, it gets really stormy, and there are all of these, like, naked, gray, gross, gross half-drowned bodies, like, mm-hmm. swimming and overtaking the boat, and that's how, like, Chris falls into the water. Mm-hmm. And when they get washed ashore, all of those people are, like, also washed ashore, like, in a way that's very much like debris, mm-hmm. which is gross mm-hmm. and really disturbing looking but again the visual metaphor is fantastic of just all of these gray nude bodies laying inert on a beach moaning in agony yikes yeah um and then they come across the gates of hell which are entangled shipwrecks Ooh, in, like in a desert Ooh, it's really cool and there's a huge decrepit rusted aircraft carrier that's labeled as Cerberus. That's super fascinating. Isn't it? And I read that they actually filmed on the like rusted decrepit hole of hull, not hole, hull <laughs> of a, of an actual aircraft carrier that was later sunk to make a false reef. I can't remember which gate Cerberus guards, but he guards one of the gates in Dante's Inferno. Interesting. That's there are the no there are no like layers of hell or different things they like different levels or chunks of hell in the movie. They all kind of blend into each other, mm-hmm. which I think reflects the idea that the afterlife is what your mind decides it is. Mm-hmm. That um, you just they see different people in their own personal hells or in shared hells. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just have to figure out which one Annie is in. But it's all in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, so they're kind of tracking down Annie. Albert is. He can, like, sense where she is. But only because they go to Annie's funeral, and Ian is praying for her at the funeral. And so they show up, and Albert is like, be grateful for your Ian. And Chris is like, I'm grateful for all my children. Fuck you. And, uh, and Albert is like, yeah, but he's praying and I can pick up on his pray- prayers and figure out where to find her. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not against 
having religious ideologies in it. No, it's just that they lean so heavily on it. Yeah. Where, like, and, it, and all in a way that, like, removes Annie's agency. Yes, that's really heavy in the book. Yeah, they don't do that in the movie. She's a really fleshed out, well-written <laughs> character. Absolutely not. I don't even know who she is in this book. Wow, what a shame. Yeah, but they lean on Ian's praying and prayer to the point that... So Annie dies of suicide. Mm-hmm. And when they find her, she's in a replica of their house that they lived in together, but everything's decrepit and dirty. Yeah, it's like that in the movie, too. Yeah. And Chris spends a little while wandering through the house because he can't find her right away. Mm-hmm. And Ian's room is the only one that looks lived in. I wonder why that is. What the hell? Uh-huh. I don't like that. Yeah, no, it's... So, as far as everything being in your head, um, it looks like I didn't grab this quote either, but it's something about... So, they are in hell, and there's, like, a bunch of people, like you were talking about, like, in the water, except they don't... It's not entirely water. Like, there's a pool there. And um, they attack Chris... Because he is not Virgil, and so he's not uh, as <laughs> mentally strong. Okay. And so they attack him, like, just for funsies. And there's a somewhat extended sequence. It's about a page long of him being attacked, and they, like, drag him over to the pool, and he drowns. And then when he comes to, they're a ways away. And Albert is like, they only had you for, like, two seconds. All that happened in your head. Oh, weird. Yeah. Huh. That's ooky. Oh, yeah. It was... <laughs> Not a fan. There's some real ooky imagery when they get down into hell in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, within the... Sort of on the shipwrecks, there are these people. And this is also, like, we, we see red in hell in the movie. Which, it's, like, in the direction that they're initially going. There's sort of people, like, wearing scraps of red fabric. And I think there's, like, a red flag or something. And then Chris realizes that that's not the direction they need to go. So it's another, like, moment where he, like, sees Red pulling him in one direction. And then he makes the choice to, like, do something else. Which is cool. But on the shipwrecks, there are these, like, bodies. I hesitate to say people because they're, like, just images of people. Mm-hmm. Um, of, like, these trapped souls. And there's one shot of two women sort of sitting hunched over and they're like screaming but they don't have mouths so they're like trying to call out and scream but they can't do it it's very ooky wow i do not like that yeah no it's very very ooky but yeah that's when chris realizes that ian is not albert because they're like gearing up to sort of run through these run into the shipwrecks and there's like aggressive souls in there (laughs) like there's the sad screaming mouthless women but there's also like dudes with spears who Mm -hmm. are like angry Mm -hmm. and so they're like who got uh they were not punished for murdering people it's just the law that they have to be here because they're murderers (laughs) (laughs) is that in the book yeah oh no (laughs) (laughs) wow no they're like getting ready to go in there to search for annie and um and in that moment of, like, bravery or whatever, Chris has a flashback to Ian 
and realizes that the man in front of him is Ian. And it's, oh, this is such a beautiful moment of acting because they're like ready to go. And Ian is like, let's go, let's do this. We can handle it. And he starts to go forward and Chris grabs him and is like, no, she's not in there. And Ian starts to like fight him. And Chris is like, your mother's not in there. Ooh. And it immediately hits slow motion. The sound fades out and it's a close up of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s shocked emotional face as he turns to look. And it's like this moment where they finally connect. Like he turns and he sees his father and he knows his father sees him for the first time. It's so good. It's beautiful. They, it's, oh, I love, I love it. <laughs> and the flashback that he has is the day that they played hooky and they're like running through the woods in the rain and talking about how Ian is struggling in school and sort of what they're, what Ian wants to do about it, if he wants to leave school or if he wants to keep trying. Mm-hmm. But um, Ian's whole thing is he feels like he's not good enough. He's not as smart as his, as his dad. He's not, he can't do the things his dad can do. And so Chris tries to reassure him and is saying, like, all the good things about Ian. And he says, if I was going through fucking hell, there's not another man I'd want by my side. Oh. <laughs> and it's, we see that. And then we see it on Chris's face in hell as he's looking at who he thought was Albert. You see it on his face as he realizes it's Ian and then he grabs him and stops him from running into hell. Oh my God. It's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. (laughs) It's amazing. So he does have a couple flashbacks in the book. I think all of them concern Anne, Mm -hmm. which again, it's just crazy to me that she's so infantilized because there's like three or four flashbacks concerning Anne. I have no idea who she is. That's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. Let me read you some select quotes I wrote down. Oh, please do. I'm ready to be mad. Anne looked at me with her wicked little girl expression. So that one is not (laughs) that bad. Because I mean, I see a lot of people make that comparison where like, you're going to be naughty. So it's you you got that wicked little expression, you know, but why little girl? uh, Yeah, because children are mischievous. So that one, if that had been the only one, that'd be oh, I'd be okay with it if she wasn't infantilized elsewhere. But the other ones, this one. (laughs) This one is the worst one. I can't get over it. I'm so mad. He describes her as child hyphen woman. Oh. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, just... Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not okay. This child woman. That is so problematic. (laughs) Uh, She shook her head, looking like a panicked child. Mm. Her face, so like a child's, striving to understand some vast remote mystery. Uh, (laughs) When he's just, like, talking to her about normal stuff. And she's like, I don't know how to use my brain. I am a child. How do you, how do you even think that way about a grown woman? Right? How could you even imagine a marriage? And he said directly that this is a self-insert for his wife. Yes. 
So this is how he sees his own wife. Yes. Richard Matheson thinks his own wife is an emotionally weak child woman. Yes. That is so wrong. Yes. It's absolutely disgusting. Wow. Again, not at all what happens in the movie. She is such a good character in the movie. It's so upsetting. She's not a character at all in the book. Wow. Yeah. She's a character in the movie where much of what we know about her can be inferred through the way that she's filmed and the set dressing around her. Yeah. I, again, it's been at least a decade, probably longer since I've seen this movie, so I don't remember super well. But I remember her not being in it much, but still being really impactful in the scenes that she's in. Yes. And she's not in it much in the book, and when she is, she is described as a child woman. Wow. One of the things I love about the movie is the way that it shows healthy communication. And we see that in Chris's memories of Annie. (laughs) Ugh. Like, even uh, he has one memory early on where the family dog is going to be put down. Mm -hmm. And this is where the movie, like, begins its thesis on grief Mm -hmm. and how grieving is good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's many ways to do it. Where it shows Annie explaining to their daughter, Marie, that when the dog goes to the vet, she's not going to get better. And Marie is upset and is like, you mean you're going to kill my dog? Mm. And Annie says, I'm going to help her die. And talks about, like, how hard it is. And and Marie doesn't want to be comforted. Like, Annie tries to take her hand and Marie pulls away from her and, like, won't look at her and is just mad. Mm-hmm. And Annie says, you get angry and that's okay. And she, like, teaches her daughter about grief sort oh, of God. in this moment of losing the family dog. I saw a quote recently. I don't remember who it was by. Uh, I will Google it real quick. It is by... It is not coming up who said it. But the quote is, I sat with anger long enough until she told me her real name was Grief. And that's... I don't know. The movie, like, takes us through the different stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And the only one that it really condemns is the one that ends in suicide. Mm. But for the most part, like, Annie's the one who teaches her daughter about grief. And then later on, like, Annie's the one who points out to Chris that Ian's not doing well in school and he needs his dad to talk to him about it. And that's why Chris takes Ian out into the woods for a day of fun and they have a conversation. Like, Annie is a good mother and smart and it shows how she and Chris talk to each other without being nasty even when they disagree that's so great yeah like it shows them having adult married people conversations about life and the kids and all of that and Annie is like so intrinsic to who Chris is as a person and who he becomes is because of Annie's influence on him and all of that is shown through tiny little scenes that is so great yeah so to hear that she's nothing in the book and is just a woman child is so upsetting it's uh, I hated it. <laughs> yeah. The movie is really about their romance and their relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. But I feel like so much of, like, we see Annie through Chris's eyes mm-hmm. for the most part. But it's not, like, it's not done in any kind of, like, I need this woman and I, I have to possess her. It's, like, they literally can't be without each other. Yeah. And it's mutual. That is how it reads in the book. I have to possess her 
type of feeling rather than it being about love and mutual because love a huge part of love is mutual respect and that's just not there oh that's so that's so disappointing it's terrible and so interesting to me then that there's that quote that I can't find to credit Mm -hmm. that wouldn't it have been a good movie if it was based on your book? Is like, no. It would not have <laughs> it probably been. Would have, probably would have been a really bad movie. It sounds like they changed all the things that needed changing. Yeah. Except for the suicide thing. Yeah. <laughs> but man. Yeah. So when they talk about reincarnation, so real quick, um, yeah. when he is going into the house in hell, mm-hmm. this is another instance where it's like, have you never heard of editing? Because he starts to describe the the way that everything looks and how it's all run down and horrible. And then, again, he stops dead and he goes, I thought again of what Albert had said before he left me. Because he goes alone into the house. And mm-hmm. it's a paragraph of what he said about how dangerous this is and how it'll be hard. And then goes back to describing stuff. And, like, you could have just switched those first two paragraphs yeah. And then you wouldn't have had to start with, um, I was halfway up the hill now, how dreary everything appeared. I've described the driveway already. Yeah, that's clunky. Clunky. Have you never heard of editing? So in the movie, a visual that I really love is when they reach the, the house that Annie has created in hell. It's not placed like as if they're in the real world. Mm-hmm. The house is detached from everything. It's just the house, no driveway or yard or anything. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to describe, but basically it's like in the center of what would be the ceiling of a chapel, but it's upside down. Interesting. So the whole room is they're standing on the ceiling of a chapel. So you have like those huge gilt arches, you know, in like a domed chapel ceiling. Mm-hmm. But that's the floor. So the floor swoops up. And right where the, all of those swoops begin is where the house is placed. Wow. That's really uh-huh. cool. And I thought that was a, a good use of religious iconography that it's uh, like too complex for me to articulate <laughs> <laughs> the way that I perceived it. But almost like, you know, let's say that. Chris and Annie are Christian. I have no problem with them being Christian. The idea that Annie is still tied to her faith, but because of her misery, it's upside down now. Mm -hmm. And that she's still placed herself within the ceiling of a chapel where maybe she feels safe. But even within that, she's still so miserable. Yeah, I like that. But you know, that like even. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I hate that that's how they presented depression, but. I don't think there's even anything wrong with saying that when a dep- someone dies in the midst of a depression, whether it be by suicide or not, that that maybe that would affect their afterlife. Like, I don't have a problem with that. My problem with it is this idea that there can be no changing it. Yeah. Like, I don't think that it would have been inherently bad had Annie ended up in her own personal hell the way that she did but to have everyone say you can't save her instead of just this happens sometimes when people die while they're depressed and it's it's more work yeah they need extra help them. right they need extra help guiding them into what can be a beautiful afterlife yeah um so i have no problem with the imagery surrounding annie's hell i just wish that there wasn't the rhetoric of she did this to herself and there's no changing it for her right she made a choice. Otherwise, she wouldn't be in hell. Like, 
suicide is not a choice. What the fuck is wrong with and you? I, I know that you know this, but I'm saying it for the benefit of anyone listening. Suicide is not a choice. Yeah. Suicide is an unfortunate consequence that sometimes is what happens when someone gets depressed. Yep. It's not a decision. Nope. So in the book, what happens when he goes in the house and like sees her in hell? What what kind of like interaction do they have? So I forget how many chapters it is. It's probably five or six chapters. Wow. It, this book is so unnecessarily long. <laughs> like it is 288 pages long. And I Am Legend, which is also by Richard Matheson, which I actually love that book. So, like, he can write a good book. Okay, good to know. That one is only 167 pages long. So that's not quite half, but a lot smaller. Cool. And just so much of this book was unnecessary. And, well, okay, again, it's more like he was trying to... All of what was unnecessary to the story was integral to illuminating his universal truth. So... Anyway, it's like five or six chapters, and he gets there, and actually, so, trigger warning for the dog dies. Okay. Because they do have their dog that he meets in heaven that was put down, Mm -hmm. Katie. Yeah, that happens in the movie. Mm -hmm. And in this, they had another dog when Chris died in the car accident. Her name is Ginger, and Anne dies of suicide. And then the dog stops eating until she also dies. What the hell? And is in hell with Anne. What? Yeah. So dogs, if they die by suicide, also go to dog hell? Yeah. What? Yeah, it's... (laughs) They're dogs, Richard Matheson. All dogs go to hell if they commit suicide. (laughs) I don't think... If they die of suicide. I don't think that dogs have the emotional capacity to invent an afterlife for themselves. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. And I think that they're highly emotional beings, but I'm sorry, I don't think that their minds do that. (laughs) I don't think that a dog can commit to torturing itself in the afterlife. That is messed up. (laughs) Yeah, it's not my favorite thing. (laughs) I think if a dog followed its owner to hell, that dog would do a great job of pulling that person out of hell. And you can fight me on that. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so Ginger is there. Wow. And Chris has to lower his vibrations real low in order for Anne to see him and talk to him. Because the more depressed you are, the lower your vibration. Correct. <laughs> and so she doesn't recognize him, and he tries to manipulate her into recognizing that she's dead and has died of suicide and is in hell. Okay. Through, like, he introduces himself but doesn't say his name, but then is like, oh, I see you have a dog. Is her name Ginger? I also have a dog named Ginger kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, and that is the point where after, like, five or six chapter, chapters of this, of, like, talking to her, trying to convince her that she's died and her being like, I'm not dead because there is no afterlife. Um and fighting him on it, she, you know, her face so childlike, striving to understand some vast and remote mystery. Shit. Right. And he can't convince her. And at some point, she um, st- 
starts to like understand it and then like is so depressed that she like actively rejects understanding it okay and after he spends like three pages thanking her for all all of her hard work in life he's like thanks for for birthing my children which is (laughs) you know it's not at all the most misogynist monologue i've ever read um (laughs) and so she like almost has a moment of understanding and then actively rejects it and he has a cry and then decides to stay in hell with her forever so that she won't be alone in this horrible afterlife and him lowering his vibrations just that one step further so that he'll be trapped with her forever she then recognizes him and is and simultaneously recognizes that they're in hell and is like you did this for me and then that gives her the strength to not be in hell anymore i guess tight okay (laughs) okay so they did that better in the movie too (laughs) really yeah shocking i know surprise (laughs) it does sort of play out the same um he does go in there and like she doesn't recognize him but he doesn't I mean, he is in some way trying to manipulate her, but, it, like, manipulation sounds really malicious. Yeah, it just reads as really malicious in this. Yeah, it's not in the movie. He In the movie, because everyone has said, you can't save her, she's not going to know you, mm-hmm. like, and she can't recognize what she's done, all that, you know, whatever, he doesn't go in there trying to prove to her that she's dead. Mm-hmm. He just goes in there trying to connect with her. So he he, like tries to feed into her delusion just enough to start to change it. Mm -hmm. So like at first he says like, Oh, I'm your neighbor, this and that. And he ends up telling her like, shoot, he ends up saying like, Oh, I knew, I knew this woman who's, whose family died. And he like starts telling their story to her as if he's talking about someone Mm -hmm. else. And you can see Annie get like distressed but also, like, wants to know that there's a happy ending, so she's going to listen. Mm-hmm. And so he tries a couple of times. He ends up saying, like, oh, she says when you're dead, you disappear. And he says, no, that's not true. And he starts to tell her about his experience with the afterlife without, again, without saying that it's that it's him and that they're dead. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, you can you can see the dead afterwards all you have to do is like want to you know all you have to do is like close your eyes you can you can do whatever you want and she says she calls him christy in the movie and so she says i just want to see christy and he says you can just close your eyes and he like it's shown throughout the movie that you can sort of guide someone's mind in heaven Mm -hmm. like that's how they travel is they like yeah. shut their eyes and connect in a spiritual way and then they're somewhere else yeah so he has her close her eyes and then he sort of puts them in the memory of the day they got married and so it shows them like down the aisle and she's obviously like really happy to see him and he says annie this is real it's really me the man the man in the house that's me and she loses it which again this is a heartbreaking moment and it's all down to I don't know how to pronounce her name. I think it's Annabella Sciorra. Sciorra? I'm not sure. But she plays Annie, and she is so fantastic in the way that she portrays absolute misery. Mm. Where when he says, it's me, I'm the man in the house, 
her face just collapses. Oh, man. And she just, she rips off the veil. And as she rips it off, they're immediately back in the hell house. And she starts screaming at him about, you can't take my husband from me, whoever you are. I don't know you. It's so devastating. And that's when Chris realizes that maybe everyone was right. And maybe he can't connect with her anymore. So he does do, he sits by her and he says, he does his whole thank you monologue, only it's not misogynistic. (laughs) He like... It's Robin Williams, right? So he's able he's able to imbue it with that little tiny bit of not humor per se, but like you know, part of it is he he says that one of the things he's sorry for is that he's never going to get to buy her another meatball sub, <laughs> and it's just those yeah. things that it's like, man, like, and it's Robin Williams, so he's able to deliver it with that kind of like just that emotion that he yeah. had that like, you know, you're already crying. And then he says that and you're like, damn, now I'm also crying about meatball subs. <laughs> like it's sad, but yeah, he thanks her for, you know, the kids and for the life they had together and all of that stuff. And then he goes back outside to Albert and basically is like, yeah, I, I guess you were right. And Albert is like, did you come close to losing it while you were with her? And Chris says, yeah, a couple of times. And then he's like, can you tell my kids that I love them and I'm not going to leave their mother? Oh my God. And then he goes back in the house. Oh my God. Yeah. He goes back in the house. He sits down in front of Annie who still does not know who he is. He tries to take her hand and she won't let him. And he just says, okay, babe, where are we going? (laughs) I'm going to cry. I didn't even watch it. No, it's, it's devastating. I'm just, by this point in the movie, I am just full on sobbing every time I watch it. And yeah, and he basically is like, in a minute, I'm not going to know you and you're not going to know me, but we're going to be here together. And, you know, and that's how it is. And this is a parallel to the conversation they have when Annie is in the hospital after her first attempt at suicide, where she, it's all about how she feels left alone by him. And that he couldn't be with her in her grief. He couldn't join her. Uh. And so this moment where he decides, I'm going to join her and be just as miserable as she is, is the thing that brings them together the same way it did when they were I out. love that. That is yes. so and beautiful. so right when she recognizes him, he stops recognizing her. <laughs> but because she has connected with him now, she's now able to pull him out of hell. Wow. So they save each other in the movie. I and love I love that. It. Yeah. Um, and when they're in heaven afterwards, um, he has no memory of how they got out of mm-hmm. hell. <laughs> but they end up together in his heaven. And their heaven. He's it is yeah, it's their heaven. Um <laughs> and he's like, What happened? How did we get here? And she says, Well, travel here is like everything else, it's all in your mind. And he's like, I don't understand, like, how did you do this? And, like, I tried everything to save you. I don't understand. And she's like, but the thing that worked was you joined me. See, that's so much better than the way it's presented uh, in the it's, book. I know, it's beautiful. It's, like, kind it's the of the same movie. idea, but... But it's just presented so much yeah. better. Oh, that's that's a lot. I love that. It's a lot. And I do, I want to talk about, because I mentioned colors earlier, but I only talked about two Mm -hmm. of them. But this ties in um, really the way that Annie's character is filmed. And again, like I said earlier, the set dressing and everything is a huge part of how we come to understand her character. Where 
when they first meet, she's wearing like loose clothes, like summer dresses. She has really long, curly, wild hair. And that's how we're introduced to her is this like loving, joyful person. And then after the death of the kids, she, we don't see her at first in her like deep, deep depression. We don't see that until later, but what we see at first is her four years later, and she's has a really severe short bob haircut, straight across bangs, and she's wearing very structured tailor garments. Mm. So she's gone from this very like free spirited, open, loving, emotional person to obviously like has closed up a little bit to protect herself. And we also see her go from wearing bright colors and white to wearing all black. So you see this huge difference in what grieving her children did to her. Yeah. And one of the first scenes, I think it's the first scene that we see her after the children have died. She's in her art gallery that she runs, but the whole space is stark white. And she's sort of framed in this round cutout window on a staircase mm-hmm. where everything around her is just stark white, straight walls. And she's this tiny little black figure amongst all of this white. Which to me reads as she's still in that depression and that grief. Yep. And all around her is this white that she used to be used to be able to touch, but it's different to her yep. now. And white is again used uh, when Chris dies. He, or when he when he finally goes to heaven, um, it shows him running through a tunnel, which parallels how he died. But it also the tunnel is filled with white light. Mm-hmm. And I read that it's actually a visual reference to a Hieronymus Bosch painting. I think that's how that's pronounced. I think it's called Ascent of the Blessed. I forgot to write it down, hmm. but it's it's a parallel to that painting that shows someone entering heaven through a a white tunnel so we see white in the movie as representing like a transition from life to death or vice versa where like annie used to wear white and then she doesn't she's now surrounded by white so she's alive but internally doesn't feel alive Mm -hmm. we see chris enter heaven through white when he dies it shows him in an all-white hospital room and as he's going through the process of realizing he's dead Anytime there's a scene change or a cutaway, the screen flashes white. Interesting. Yeah. And then um, one of the things I loved with the use of white light is in the house in hell. So in the upside down cathedral, everything is really dark. Mm -hmm. It's all desaturated. Everything is gray and black. But when he goes into the house, there are these shafts of bright white light that come down through the ceiling. almost like a visual metaphor that there is still a way out and that life is still even in the darkest parts of Annie's mind life is still there yeah I like that yeah and then and then when they come out of hell when she pulls Chris out um first it, it flashes through him in water again and then again there's like the screen fades to white and when it fades back in there in heaven Wow. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. And then the other main color that I noticed was blue, which I think I read it as kind of representing grief or like the healing process. Mm -hmm. Because I mentioned earlier when they have that conversation about their double D anniversary, they're wearing blue while they're surrounded by green. Mm -hmm. But we also see blue um, 
the day, both the day that the children die and the day that Chris dies, there's, they have these huge blue trees in their driveway that are dropping blue flowers on those days. And it's, it's framed where you see the van that the kids are in driving away down down the driveway mm-hmm. and there's all of these blue flowers falling. Mm-hmm. There's blue fa- blue flowers on the children's caskets and um, there's blue when they discuss their double day anniversary. There's a scene where Annie is at Chris's graveside while he's still a spirit and he's clinging on mm-hmm. to her where she's putting blue flowers on his grave, but she's also wearing a blue headscarf. Mm. So every time you see blue, it's like someone attempting to heal or like going through some kind of grief process. Mm-hmm. Annie wears a really pale blue nightgown the night that she dies. And then when she's in heaven, she's wearing a bright blue nightgown. Well, and I like that she's wearing the blue headscarf representing that she's trying to heal. And Chris mm-hmm. hanging around causes that to not work. Whereas yeah. in the book, so it's it's almost, I, I mean, no one's really at fault for her um dying of suicide but it's him hanging around contributes to her continued grief yes whereas in the book she's just weak (laughs) so yeah and that's the thing is in the movie she's never really presented as weak yeah which is why it's so upsetting that they frame the whole afterlife of depression and death by suicide as somehow like a selfish weakness mm-hmm. because Annie is not a weak character. Yeah. It's a shame. And it show it's like a, an incongruity where it's like, she's this incredibly strong character who in a lot of ways made Chris a better person. They grew together. You know, she's a good mother, all of that stuff. She's this really smart, really artistic, wonderful person who just has mental illness yeah. and suffered extreme tragedy. Yeah. So, after they go back to heaven, um, in the book, this was also upsetting to me, they do not spend any time at all together in heaven. Um, Oh, Because he saves her from hell, um, but she still isn't good enough to go to heaven, and has to immediately be reborn. What? Yeah. Oh my god! Richard Matheson hates women and hates depressed yes. people. He sure does. <laughs> wow. I mean, he did. He's dead uh, now. True. <laughs> uh, I mean, hey, maybe he's in heaven continuing to hate people. <laughs> I hope not. I, I hope that he has learned yeah. in his afterlife. Uh, so she is reborn immediately. And again... I, to continue with how horrible their com- condemnation of suicide is, um, so she gets reborn, and she has a handicap to overcome, which can counterbalance the negative effects of her suicide. Oh, okay. Real quick, just to clarify, you used the word handicap in a quote. That was not yes. you saying it? Yes. Okay. That is in a quote. Okay. Um. So, she died of suicide by taking an overdose of sleeping pills. Okay. And so, the body that she chooses to be reborn into, as much as it can be a choice when you have to be reincarnated right now because you're not allowed into heaven because you're not good enough. Um, you can't have any time to think about things or be at peace correct. or process yeah. stuff without the weight of living. Just jump right back right. in. Because you had such a hard time and suffered from depression. 
Right. So we're just going to throw you right back into that. Correct. Um, so messed up. So she will have an illness. And, okay, so this doesn't make any sense. She will contract an illness that will cause severe sleep deprivation. Wait, hold up. Who's making these decisions? It's the law. <laughs> Whose law? <laughs> you know, the law. There's no judgment. It's just the law. That's <laughs> judgment, my dude. Yeah. Oh, um, my God. God. She, quote unquote, makes the choice, but again, like, she's not good enough to get into heaven, so she has to be reincarnated right now, and the body that is immediately available is this body that will have severe sleep deprivation. What? Yeah. So it's not really a choice, is it? No. <laughs> and, wow. yeah, and she dies of suicide by taking too many sleeping pills to balance the scales she acquires a condition which would not permit permit her to sleep normally how fucked up is that what scales are we balancing you know she did i need i need clarification what is this god did she offend god like that doesn't make any sense there's no internal logic to that yeah yeah, no, they don't really explain it. They're just like, this is the law. Who's law? Yeah. Who's in charge? Who? Because I need to fight them about because this. Because I also thought that the law was suicides go to hell and there's no way to bring them back. But Chris managed to do that. Right. So, like, uh, who's, <laughs> who's yeah. in charge? Maybe just don't reincarnate her. Or, you know, if she wants to, fine, I guess. But sure, to but have like, it maybe be... maybe give her some time with yeah, her husband. To have it be, you have to be reincarnated, reincarnated right now because you died of suicide, so you're a bad person, and your vibrations are too low to get into heaven, so you have to be reincarnated in order to fix your problem. What, what problem? The pro- her mental illness that she had no control over? Yes. Her completely logical and free choice of dying by suicide what yeah so and this again chris gets reincarnated into a doctor okay (laughs) specifically so that he can go meet Anne, who he knows will have um this issue so that he can take care of her Cool. So even in her next life, she's infantilized and has to be cared for. Yep. Cool. Uh-huh. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. What the hell, Richard Matheson? Yeah, it's bad. Man, in the, okay, in the film, <laughs> I don't want to shock you or anything, <laughs> but that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> um... So, yeah, like I said earlier, she does get to go to heaven. She's in Chris's heaven with him. They yeah. shared heaven now. Yeah. She gets to see her children, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and they discuss reincarnation together of do they want to do this? Mm-hmm. And it's presented as, first of all, it's a choice. Mm-hmm. It's established earlier that Albert has been reincarnated several times. He mm-hmm. just, he's he likes going back and doing stuff over. Mm-hmm. And... Chris and Annie approach it as, you know, we know that we can get to heaven. Like, we know what this is like now. We know we can come back here and be together. So do you want to do it all over again? That 
is really cute. <laughs> yeah, like let's let's go back and fall in love again. That's and, really cute. Yeah, and even like Annie's a little bit hesitant, and Chris is like, "Don't worry about the kids. They they're they're supportive of it. They want us to go." And because time doesn't work the same in heaven, he's like, "You know, a whole human life is just a heartbeat up here." And we'll be, they, they won't even have time to miss us. And then we'll be back and we can all be together. So it's all like a very positive thing. And yeah. Annie is like, we could go back and fall in love and meet each other all over again. Like we could do it differently the next time. And she even says like, how will I find you? And Chris is like, I found you in hell, didn't I? Right. You know, he's like, don't uh. worry about it. And then the very last scene of the movie shows two kids with toy boats on a lake and the toy boats crash into each other and then reincarnated Annie goes over and gives reincarnated Chris a little sandwich and it's like these two little kids who meet (laughs) yeah and so it shows it's like this thread of hope of like like they're gonna be reincarnated and they can do this as many times as they want this idea that they're soulmates and they can just keep falling in love and living with each other I'm weak for that it's beautiful. Yeah. No, in the book, it definitely leans on, again, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and this idea that reincarnation is specifically about the learning process and that you choose reincarnations based on what your soul needs to grow and eventually reach nirvana. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's fine, I, mean, I guess. That's fine. That's fine. I just don't like the way Richard Matheson approached it. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't like. I have no qualm with that belief system. Yeah. I just don't like Richard Matheson. And- right, and his combining the Tibetan Book of the Dead with the Catholic belief that suicide is the worst. <laughs> Depression thing. is a choice, and you're weak. Yeah, and that suicide is the worst thing uh, alongside murder. I don't remember what the exact quote is, but it's basically like if you commit murder or die of suicide, you're you go to hell, and that's the only two examples that he gives. What? Mm-hmm. Murder and suicide are equally bad. I can't even believe that someone would ever read this book and, like, lose their fear of death. Right? <laughs> Sounds like people who don't have mental illness Ooh. might lose their fear of death. Uh-huh. If I had read that book in the midst of my teenage depression, I would have been like, damn. Right? I, there's no hope for me. <laughs> right? Jeez. What's yeah. interesting is I watched this movie for the first time in the midst of my depression, and it gave me hope. Mm-hmm. Like, this movie actually was vitally important to me, and I didn't really realize it until this last rewatch, where it brought up a lot of feelings mm-hmm. that I didn't know I had about this movie. But I watched it when I, like, needed hope about the afterlife and hope that depression wasn't going to be the thing that killed me. Yeah. That, like, even with all of the bad representation of mental illness, it's still, there's enough of a through line that the choices you make in life don't have to affect your death yeah that like really really helped me when I was super depressed and it sounds like the book would have been the opposite Mm -hmm. yeah I've never been particularly disturbed by my intrusive thoughts but if I was this book would be horrifying to me because of his experience in purgatory where every thought you've ever had matters and to have that idea coupled with the types of intrusive thoughts that I have would be like, oh, God, I'm definitely going to hell then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah. So I was looking at reviews Mm -hmm. because I wanted to see, like, what other people had to say about this movie. Um, And I found 
uh, Ebert's review from when it came out. Mm -hmm. And this was, we got to get into this because Ebert said one of his, I mean, first of all, he said that the visual effects were stunning and that he Mm -hmm. overall like really enjoyed the movie. But his criticism of it was, I quote, the movie is so good, it shows us how it could have been better. It seems headed for a great leap, we we can sense it coming, and then it settles. If Hollywood is determined to shortchange us with an obligatory happy ending, then it shouldn't torment us with a movie that deserves better. Huh. And I want to know what Ebert's beef with happy endings is. Yeah. Because I did not see any kind of settling in this movie. I don't see what's wrong with a happy ending. Yeah. Especially for an emotional roller coaster of children die, a dog dies, the husband dies, the wife dies, they're trapped in hell. Like, and then what you didn't want it to end happily. Right. I think that's just a matter of some people just like it to be bleak. I mean, I still remember uh, George R. R. Beard saying that (laughs) the Lord of the Rings is really good, except Gandalf should have stayed dead. And like, so you didn't understand the book then. (laughs) Right. The other quote that I have from Ebert's review was, I walked out of the theater sensing that I should have felt more, that an opportunity had been lost. What dreams may come takes too far, takes us too far and risks too much to turn conventional at the end. It could have been better. What? Better how? Like he, I want him. I want him to have elaborated. Yeah, to, uh, do a fix it script because I want to know what you think should have happened. Right. Like I'm really curious what he wanted from the ending of the movie because like it's Ebert, so he doesn't. He didn't usually go into that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, I just I don't see what should have been different. Like, and he keeps saying that this happy ending is conventional. And, like, as if that's uncreative and that the rest of the movie was so grand in scale that, like... Yeah, no, I feel like it's just that BS thing where, like, if it's predictable, it's bad. That's the thing right now. Where, like, no, if But this came out in 98. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like it's just that same beef that's I guess. It's okay. I thought it was such a weird take of, like, everything about this movie is great, except that it ends, quote-unquote, conventionally. Like, okay. What is your problem, man? (laughs) Like, did you want Annie to stay in hell and be tortured for eternity? Right. Did you want Chris to stay there with her? Like, what did you want to be different? Because I don't know about you. But I've watched this movie several times, and I'm always emotionally wrecked by the end of it. And all I'm looking forward to is that moment where they're not in hell anymore. Yeah. Like, I need the emotional relief of knowing that this is not how eternity has to go for some people. Huh. I just, I thought it was so weird that Ebert didn't like the ending. <laughs> that is super weird. Yeah. Um, so, got any recommendations? Um... No. <laughs> no? <laughs> I mean, it's Robin Williams. Yeah. As the lead, one of the leads. Um, Annabella Sciorra is fantastic, but I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I've seen her in aside from this is Chasing Liberty, <laughs> where she plays a um, Secret Service agent, <laughs> which she does a great job. It's a funny movie. I like that movie. But um, no, I don't like what am I going to do? Recommend a Robin Williams movie? Like, <laughs> pick one. <laughs> They're all good. Most of, most of them are fantastic. Yeah. Like, I guess if you want to watch one where he has sort of a similar compassionate but comedic role, like maybe Awakenings. 
He also plays a doctor in that one. Yeah. And- you know, I've never actually watched that, but I did read. Um, so that book is based on a book by Oliver Sacks. Right. And I read his Oliver Sacks autobiography. I think it, I want to say it's called On the Move. Um, okay. It was really, really good. And there was a couple chapters um, describing how Robin Williams followed him around for several weeks <laughs> in order to get his mannerisms down. And one day um, he was, I think he was flagging down a cab and like he and Robin Williams made the exact same arm gesture at the exact same time and then like looked at each other. And Robin was like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I think I'm done following you around now. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Robin Williams was by no means an unproblematic king, but overall, a really good person. (laughs) I've never seen a movie that he was bad in, for sure. Uh, Yeah, I don't think so. I I feel like he was in some movies that were bad, but his performance was never bad. (laughs) Yeah, I never actually watched all of Good Will Hunting, so I can't say for sure. We quit halfway through because it was so bad. We did. It was really misogynistic. It was really misogynistic. But Robin Williams was good in it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it gets better. I just didn't want to watch the rest of it. Life's too short. I mean, if there's a book, we might have to. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it was really interesting to read this book and Sabriel back to back because Mm -hmm. there were a lot of interesting parallels. But as far as a recommendation, I'd have to go with Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Okay. Which has similar themes of existentialism and... um, questions of autonomy and what it means to make your own choices and it's the main plot is about a husband trying to reconnect with his wife so interesting yeah it's not my favorite kind of book but I did think that it was really well done okay um I will say something that was interesting for me this month is I've been watching a lot of stuff for our next episode on The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, there's really similar themes in the Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House, Mm -hmm. and the movie What Dreams May Come. Oh, interesting. The the Netflix series focuses a lot on different kinds of grief, and grief as something that can pull people apart, but also something that can bring people together. Interesting. So if... I guess if you want to watch more things that deal with grief in a compassionate, well-thought-out way, I would recommend The Haunting of Hill House, the Netflix series, but only if you also can handle a certain amount of jump scares and horror. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we'll get into that next time. Yeah. Yeah, for those playing along at home, next time is The Haunting of Hill House. And if you want to try and cram in every visual adaptation of that, there's two films and a 10-episode series. So, see you next time, Ian's and Alberts. Um, excuse you? What? I have to give social media handles. Oh. I'm Hella Lambs on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I'm Convokes Most Places, Jimmy the Deer Boy on Instagram and Twitter. And now, <laughs> see you later, Ian's and Alberts. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, be kind to yourselves. <laughs> yeah. Be kind to yourselves, support the people in your life who need support, all of that good stuff. And, um... Come back next time to be scared.